Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Everything Else, the FT Culture Podcast. I'm Griselda, I'm one of the arts editors here, and on this episode, I'll be talking to two people who are commenting in very different ways on the past and present and thinking about how art can help us make sense of the world. I'll be talking to the historian Simon Sharma about his epic new TV series, Civilizations, which spans six continents and thousands of years. I'll also be chatting to the artist Eddie Peake, who's focusing his attention right in on a single concrete sports pitch in North London. And then you come across this. And in an instant, vast millennia of time just collapse. And you're in the midst of fellow humans, their hands doing what hands do signalling from a very long way off, 37,000 years distant, in fact. But this long-distance greeting somehow makes us bond with the makers of this because they establish a presence that is palpably alive. Astonishingly, Hand stencils like these have been found in caves as far apart as Indonesia and Patagonia. Wherever we went, it seems, the urge to signal a presence went with us. And undeniably, these hand stencils do what nearly all art that would follow would aspire to. First, they want to be seen by others, and then they want to endure beyond the life of the maker. So that was, of course, the inimitable Simon Sharma in the first episode of his new series, Civilizations. And I watched the first episode last night and it's epic in its sweep. And in that clip that we've just heard, he's looking at Ice Age cave art at some of the very earliest pieces of art. Uh, he's in the El Castillo caves in northern Spain, those hand stencils, which are really beautiful and quite moving to see, are almost 40,000 years old, which is kind of mind-boggling. But within this hour-long episode, he moves from the Minoan culture of Crete to the Mayans in present-day Mexico. He's in Petra, he's in China. And there's a kind of interesting thread that links the whole thing, which is about what does civilization mean? What is it that links us humans through time and through continents together? So what he's really looking at here is the distinctively human urge to create. I actually used to work for Simon a few years ago when I was freelancing before I joined the FT full time. And when I worked for him, Civilizations was really just an idea. It was something we'd go to the BBC to have meetings about and talk about a lot. So it was really exciting to go to the BFI, to the British Film Institute last week to see some clips from the series, a sort of teaser of what this nine part series is going to be. And I spoke to Simon after the screening. 
Now, Civilizations is, of course, a kind of updating, a remake of the Kenneth Clark original 1969 series, Civilization. Obviously, the world has changed a lot in the last 50 years. And I think what's exciting about this new series is the way that it really reflects that. It has an S on the end of it, for a start. It's not a single narrative of kind of Western art. It has a much more global perspective, and it has three voices, three presenters, with really quite different views. Simon Sharma, Mary Beard, David Olasoga. And they're really quite polemical. They're not just academics. They're not just experts. They're people who have very strong views. Each film is like a little essay. So Simon has done the bulk of the films, five out of nine of them, I think. The first one, as I said, is about art and imagination, about creativity and what is it that drives humans to make art. He's also done a beautiful programme on landscape and landscape art and the metaphors for landscape and the human yearning for beauty. There's another film on the connection between East and West. There's one very beautiful one on colour and spirituality. And then finally, taking it right up to the present day, on art in the machine and profit-driven world, so contemporary art and how it relates to the contemporary moment. So Kenneth Clark's programme was groundbreaking in its day in 1969. It was celebrating the new medium of colour television. People had never seen art on TV in this way, but it was also a product of its times. It, its vision is limited. It just it tells the story of Western art. And the new series is also a product of its times. How could it not be? It's about globalisation. It's about interconnectedness. It's about the world as it is now, 50 years later. It's about environment. It's about identity. The kind of themes that characterise the present day. So as you can probably tell, I am a fan of this series or of what I've seen of it already anyway. The music is quite epic. You can hear a little bit of it in that clip, but don't let that put you off. It is also really beautiful, really beautifully photographed. And you get to see a lot of art in it, and art that I imagine I might never see in my life because it is filmed in all of these far-flung places. So if you want to check it out yourself, it's on BBC Two and iPlayer from the 1st of March. So after the screening, I sat down with Simon in the BFI bar... And as you'll hear, it can be quite hard to get a word in edgeways with him, but I did start by asking him whether he's trying in this programme to really redefine what civilization means. I think actually what the series tries to do, not as top of the agenda, is to actually make that whole question of is civilization in the way it was projected by Kenneth Clark or not projected by Kenneth Clark, the lodestar, the exclusively superior civilization to be foisted on everybody else in a kind of dumb Victorian way. That's the question we kind of want to get rid of and to be absolutely fair to Clark, he never for a second thought that that was the case. You know, he knew more than I did, I suspect, about Chinese landscape painting. He never really wanted to put it like that, but his brief was to do the legacy of antiquity and that particular narrative of happiness and faithfulness in the European tradition. What we've tried to do, certainly what I've tried to do, is actually without making it into a Guardian or an even FT opinion column, is to say there are moments where 
different cultures are paying attention to each other. In some ways, the true blight of imperial writing is either excessively romantic passion for each other or grotesque dismissal of art as, as primitive. There are moments, for example, in the High Renaissance, where Michelangelo and Mima Sinan, Suleiman the Magnificent's architect, are both building incredible domed basilicas or houses of worship to go one better than a Hagia Sophia. They're absolutely conscious of what the other is doing. We don't have exact documents, but there's an Italian colony in Istanbul and Turks go to Rome. There's a much greater degree of connectedness and attentiveness than the whole imperial and anti-imperial polemic would lead you to believe. So what you're saying is not that Clark's narrative, his kind of heroic narrative, was wrong as such, but just that it's not the... The full picture. That's right. And yeah, what you're doing is, right. is broader. Yeah, it's, it's that's east right. To west. Yes, exactly, exactly. And there are moments in sort of one of the films that you saw a bit of this evening where it's extraordinary. You sort of see Jahangir, the Mughal emperor, who's passionately interested in many things European, as his father invited Jesuits famously to Fatul Sikri. And so that in one extraordinary Mughal miniature where he's comparing himself, obviously in a way that flatters himself to Western kings, he actually incorporates Western portraiture into that one miniature. So you don't ever have to really force in a token kind of way that East speaks to West or West speaks to East. It actually just, just happens. It just mm. happens, mm. yeah. Did you have a sense of doing putting art on the telly in a, in a different way? I mean, in the original civilization, there's those, those very long, lingering shots. Yes. What, what was your... Well, I was actually most concerned that we never lost that. I mean, mm. you could not. There are extraordinary moments. You can't quite recover, and I don't think you can want to. I didn't watch Clark again from beginning to end, but I certainly did watch a number of the programmes from beginning to end. It is breathtakingly extraordinary how nothing happens except the camera drinking in the work of art and extraordinary music. There is a sort of sense somewhat of the kind of fairy lights going on, actually, and on and on and on. And I really was very concerned to preserve the generosity of allowing people to actually not be whisked on to the next punchy argument, but just simply eating up what they see. Yeah, it's that point where you can't do it. Did you feel that about the, yeah, what you were looking yeah, at? That Rajput painting the... thing, for example, I don't really say very much at all. Not very much of this interesting, but actually people... But your eye can scan it. Yes, exactly. Yeah. exactly. And seeing it on the huge screen is something that people watching on telly won't get, but you do get that, that real sense that you're looking at something and there's nothing between you and Yes. Work. We certainly, at many, many points, innumerable points, when we're on location, we said, OK, actually, have we filmed that long enough? The worst thing you do is get to the edits and actually you want to prolong the shot and the shot runs out. What was your, the most surprising discovery of the series, of the process of filming? Oh, well, the most, I don't know, there are so many, but one that was really incredibly startling that I knew a little bit about and enough to insist that we go there was this astonishing Bronze Age culture in Sichuan, in China, from about 2000 BC. It was in 1985, 86 that these extraordinary pits were discovered, which included these astonishing Bronze Age masks, plus hundreds of elephant tusks, these elephants were sacrificed. And this is a culture about which we know nothing. No documents survive, 
nothing that the imperial Chinese say has any relationship to it. There was great kind of torment in Chinese archaeological circles because it did seem to be a freak, an anomaly. Mm. And there were great strenuous efforts to say, oh, well, it was related to the authentically Chinese Shu dynasty or team, but it, it's not. This it's an entire culture that seems to be flown in from a mysterious planet and thrives for about a couple of centuries and then disappears into its sort of grave pit. So that was an amazing moment. Having looked at so much art, did you did anything emerge to you about the sort of optimum conditions for producing art? Is there something magical that you can say no, absolutely not. No, I mean, I think the magical thing is, is the impossibility of that kind of generalisation. I was very struck in the film about nature and landscape is that how much beautiful landscape art comes out of civil war and sorrows in response to it, through to a beautiful painting which occurred to me very, very late in stage by Winslow Homer, who I think is the great American 19th century artist, called Veteran in the New Field, which comes out of the Civil War just a few weeks after Lincoln's assassination. And is of a single heroic, almost classical figure, scything a boundless field of American wheat. But you don't actually see it as you do in most of the kind of sentimentally backlit sunsets and sunrises. You see it in kind of field mass from way, way down. And the fallen sheaves of wheat are, of course, the unnumbered multitudes of dead of the Civil War. So simultaneously, profoundly about sorrow and melancholy, it's a kind of visual dirge. And there is this extraordinary, mind-blowing, kind of acid rock album, endless field of golden cereal as well, going on, going on forever. So that was really extraordinary. And the kind of connection, really, between tough times and the dreams of an idyllic, paradisial landscape was very strong. You know, it's not true of Gulach, I think, for example. They produce wonderful work of art when they're in their prime. So, so suffering is No, I don't think there is any profound, overarching, single theory about creativity. You've described humans as the art animals. Yeah. What, what does that mean? Well, it means that actually humans, unlike most of the rest of mammalian species, over and above territorial fury and feeding yourself and procreating want to do something else. There is a kind of mysterious itch that happens. We'll never know whether or not it coincided with language. We talked about unusual surprises and one thing which I really hadn't taken on board properly was the fact that musical instruments, flutes and these bull roarer things that you swing around your head, but especially wind instruments, were found in very copious numbers at the site of Ice Age paintings in the caves. And they're datable to the same period as the paintings. So that meant really that art and music ritually came into the world together. And that is really kind of jaw-droppingly moving, you know, for 200,000 years, nearly a quarter of a million years, recognisably Homo sapiens have been doing its thing, but not doing this, and then they suddenly do it. And that's profound. And what about right now? Is there something that art, or looking at it, even through the medium of television, right. can bring us right now in this contemporary moment? The last programme, which I'm still, as of tomorrow, still editing, I really wanted to celebrate contemporary art 
we love it for its kind of fears and turn of prize, wildness and so on. But for me, the most powerful and most moving contemporary artists are those who are engaged with what modernism really wanted to do and to address itself to the wounds of the world. But it does so not in abstraction, actually. So, for example, a very, very moving, you know, profound moment was to go to Prague. And there's an extraordinary installation by Ai Weiwei called Law of the Journey. 270 inflated figures in an inflatable raft. He, his whole life is now bound up with refugees and the displaced. It's in the hall, which we don't say in the film, the same hall of commerce from which Jews, actually the building has been rebuilt, but it's the same site and the same structural building from which Jews were deported in 1944. But there you have this extraordinary figure suspended in space. It made me think immediately of the Terracotta Horsemen, because actually there you have multitudes of, of figures, all of which actually are featured in their faces because they're ennobled by their vocation of following the emperor into the afterlife. These are unfeatured, rubber, inflatable people because they're actually the rejected of humanity. And the sort of sense in which actually what he's doing is a kind of resistance to calamity fatigue, doing something that endless videos of desperate refugees and their children being pulled from the sea can't do in a way, actually. It's sort of this eternalising, not a word, but sort of sense actually of connecting this particular moment, pulling it out of newspaper photography and making it part of the most enduring traditions of representation is all deeply, deeply moving. And there are an awful lot of contemporary artists who do that. So it's not art as an escape from the crowds of contemporary life and all the problems. No, I think I think the greatest art is very is fully engaged with it without compromising the artiness, the kind of irreducible sense of creative dynamism and explosion. This goes back to the invention of photography. Some artists suddenly saw Delacroix famously who loved photography, that there were certain things that then photographers got to do that art couldn't do. What was the point of replica making natural descriptions when photography technically could do it much better? But there are other things out there as yet amorphously defined that art could deliver viscerally and cognitively that photography never will be able to do and that lives on and that's that's worth celebrating. Simon, thank you so much. Pleasure, Griselda. So this week, the sun was shining for the first time since about September and we decided to spend as much time out of the studio as we possibly could. So after speaking to Simon at the BFI on the South Bank, my lovely producer Chica and I ventured further into South London to very fashionable Bermondsey Street to the White Cube Gallery where the artist Eddie Peake has just opened a new show. On the face of it, Simon Sharma and Eddie Peake do not seem to have a lot in common. They have quite different perspectives. They're different generations. Simon's in his 70s, Eddie is in his 30s. But in some sense, I think... Like Simon, Eddie too is interested in the idea of civilization, in the question of what drives humans to create art. It seems like a very basic urge that we have. And in this show, Eddie's particularly interested in the idea of civilization and in how people live together in cities. 
The exhibition is called Concrete Pitch and it's inspired by Finsbury Park in North London where he grew up and by the concrete playground slash sports field where he used to play football and hang out as a teenager in a place that became a kind of stage almost where dramas played out. At least that's how he sees it. Eddie Peake is most famous for a naked five-a-side football match performance that he staged at the Royal Academy. And actually, people are often naked in his performances. He was resident at the Barbican's Curve Gallery a couple of years ago in an exhibition called The Forever Loop, which was sort of a mixture of sculpture and installation and text and narrative. There was a roller skater in a kind of see-through onesie. There were naked performers doing a sort of choreographed dance. It's very much about gender fluidity, about sexuality and desire, about the overlap between the different art forms, so visual art, music, dance. He runs an occasional club night, so for him these things are not distinct. He grew up in a creative, artistic household. His mum is the sculptor Phila de Barlow, who represented Britain at the Venice Biennale last year. She taught for a long time at the Slade, but really came to fame four or five years ago and is now one of the, the leading contemporary artists that we have. And his dad is the author Mervyn Peake. Eddie grew up listening to the 90s pirate radio station, which was broadcasting from East London, called Cool FM, now called Cool London, spelt with a K. And the DJs will be resident for the entire exhibition. So we're going to head out and go to White Cube and then have a chat with Eddie about his work. The exhibition is all in one big concrete room and the lighting is kind of low, it's pinky, grey, dusky colour and right in front of you when you walk in is a DJ booth with a kind of glass fronted panel. The DJ from Cool FM is in there, he's doing his thing, you can hear it. It's coming, it's spilling out of the gallery but when you're in here it's quite loud. There's um. There are tweets and Facebook posts and chat room posts uh, on a screen outside. You can see people interacting in real time. The gallery is reasonably full for a weekday. People are looking at the kind of graffiti-inspired art on the walls. It's picking up this kind of pinky hue that we can see. It's the sort of pop, pop colours of graffiti. Yellows, blues, pinks, kind of neon yellow. And... Right in the middle of the room is a sort of snaking line of metal tables. It's a work called Stroud Green Road, which is the artery that runs through Finsbury Park. I used to live in a flat just off it, so I know it well, and I recognise some of the objects on the tables. It's a kind of very loose, kind of playful representation of the road and the kind of things you can buy. There's the sort of materials that might be used in the hairdressers. There are plastic eggs. There's a packet of chewits. There are... There's quite a lot of neon, but the neon are not shop signs here. They're, they're, they're like line drawings, I think, of... Um, well, there's one quite beautiful one, a sort of blue neon line drawing of a foot. I don't know whether they're self-portraits, but it feels... It feels autobiographical. Now, we were told that Eddie was going to be here and is here for 
the duration of the exhibition all day, every day. What I can see is a woman uh, dressed in a kind of white boiler suit, jumpsuit, almost like a clown's outfit with big pom-poms down the front, coloured pom-poms. And she's at the top of a sort of concrete tower in the middle of the room. It's got a big ladder leading up to it. And it makes me think a bit of a sort of fairy tale, like Rapunzel. She's got these two long, very long plaits, a kind of blondie, strawberry blonde hair. And she's reading a book. And I can see from the look of the book, it actually looks like it is Chris Krause's I Love Dick. Uh, careful listeners will know that she appeared on the podcast last season so it's nice to see her popping up again here she's just reading away quite intently and I'm guessing that Eddie Peake is in this DJ booth there's a sort of office going on behind it you can peer into the walls through holes that look like they've been ripped open in the side of the booth so you can see the material that the booth has been crafted from and you can see snatches of people walking around inside in these sort of funny clown costumes. Here on the other side of the room is a huge white billowing curtain and you can walk through it in a kind of snaking spiral to the centre where there are videos playing of a sort of naked choreographed dance it says here it's called Testine and it's from this year the dancers are not really interacting with each other but they're sort of moving around each other in space they're all naked as is mandatory in an Eddie Peak exhibition and down at the bottom quite hidden away almost and smaller than the rest of it are pictures of Eddie himself dancing naked again against a kind of orangey background. So, Eddie, hi. Hello. <laughs> We're um, sitting in a back room of, of White Cube, just next to your, your show, and I wanted to ask you first about the inspiration, the idea of a concrete pitch, and what that means. Yeah. OK, so... The first thing I want to say about that, since a lot of the re written responses to the show have used what I've said about the concrete pitch that I'm referring to as a way of discussing the show around the idea of nostalgia. Right. And it makes me cringe every time I've seen that <laughs> because that's not the point. So they, it's not what, about going back to your teenage years and, and reliving? Not for the purposes of like indulging in that the warm embrace of one's own past. It's more like using memories I have of that time as a model for how we might think about the use of public space, community, a society in which lots of different people cohabit with each other. The reason I called it Concrete Pitch is because uh, I wanted to think about this communal space in Finsbury Park, the area that I come from in London, which is a very typical London area in mm -hmm. as much as it's microcosmic of the world. I also like Concrete Pitch as a title, but also the actual physical space in Finsbury Park that I'm referring to, it sort of refers, in my mind at least, to um, a kind of minimalist sculpture. In a certain sense, the concrete pitch in Finsbury Park is a gigantic minimalist land art piece. It's just one humongous rectangle of concrete. Uh, the other thing that I like about the phrase concrete pitch is that it, there is 
a reference to certain sonic phenomena and musical genres. I'm talking about music concrete, mm-hmm. the idea that the natural sounds that occur in the world are a form of composition. Mm-hmm. And then pitch, you know, the pitch of the voice, or I'm really interested in DJing. And I like that, you know, there's a reference to the pitch control on a record deck or on a CDJ. There you go. That was it. That was all of it. <laughs> it's kind of, you say it's a very typical area of London. And I'm guessing because I know the area by that, you mean that it's, there's lots of different ethnicities. There's people from different backgrounds. It's quite tightly packed mm. in together. Do you think of it as a rare meeting space in that there aren't actually that many spaces where people from such diverse backgrounds do come together in London? I do today in 2018 but actually my memory of London in the 80s and 90s as I experienced it which was predominantly in the area of Finsbury Park you know it wasn't a rarefied experience. I just think sometimes like we we talk a lot about London being multicultural and cosmopolitan which of course it is but then a lot of these subsections are existing Separately from one another. Separately, in the same space, but separately. I completely agree. And that's why um, I like to think about spaces such as the concrete pitch, which was in Finsbury Park, which was a communal space, and it was utilised by everyone. And it invites one to fill it with its imagination. And thinking about the idea of of the concrete pitch as almost like a stage or a space for performance, and obviously your, your work is kind of performative in its nature... I was thinking about um, this exhibition and the fact that you and the other performers can see visitors' reactions, like, right up in front of you. You know, most artists, when they stage a show, they don't get to see what those people think about it. Is that strange, in a way? It's really strange. This is my fourth show with White Cube. It's my second here in Bermondsey. My first show with White Cube was in the North Galleries here, where I was making a devised performance with an ensemble of dancers and musicians, and we were devising the performance over the six-week duration of the show, and that was the performance, the making of the performance. So it was kind of evolving over time. Yeah, and we really saw um, people's reactions to the show because we were just being us Mm. rather than being in character. I would be able to see people's reactions right in front of my face and we saw the full spectrum we'd see people walk in and you'd see their face light up because they were really enjoying what they were seeing or they hadn't really experienced anything like that before we also saw people who'd walk in you'd see in their facial expression that they were just reacting really negatively or aggressively to it or they were walking in and they wanted to dislike it right at the outset Mm. with this show though because my performance is somewhat less performy, the pieces are sort of play on an everyday routine. And so some of it is literally me just doing what I would do in a daily routine. So sitting down and writing my emails or drinking coffee or making some drawings or, or whatever it is. Um, so I was there just now, and um, but we didn't see you. We saw the female performer with the long plaits and she yeah. was at the top of a tower reading... Emma Fisher. I Love yeah. Dick. Yeah. yeah. She was um, reading I Love Dick. Yeah, she was reading Chris Krause. <laughs> right. So I was like, yes. Yeah. Um, so, but if you had been there at that moment when I was also in the space, what would I have seen you... Would you have been wearing the similar costume to her, like the sort of clown-like costume? Yeah, or? exactly, with the big pom-poms down the front. Whilst some of the performance is totally quotidian, mm-hmm. other parts of it are more obviously 
performed with a capital P and my performances are based on the idea of creating images that are moving, like a tableau vivant type situation. The segment that you referenced is one such moment like that, sitting atop the triangle and reading, which I just think is quite an arresting and beautiful image. Uh, one thing I forgot to instruct Emma to do is cover the book because um, I read my book, but I don't want it to be part of the aesthetic of okay. the work, what I'm reading, because I find it a bit cringe. Oh, he's reading such and such book, how poetic or whatever. <laughs> but I, I'm OK with her reading Chris Krauss because I personally am a big yeah, Chris Krauss fan. Yeah, I think that's all right, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Um, with this one, I'm much less... I'm just being totally forthwally about it and um, not really engaging in any way with the viewer, which has been a little bit awkward when people I've known have walked in and gone, Eddie, Eddie, all right, Ed, like that. I'm just like, nope. Does it make it easier in a sense, though, because you're sort of, you're putting up a wall between you and us? Yeah, it does. It makes it easier for me to know how to approach the whole thing if I'm just quite boundaried about how to do it. So why is it that you're wearing this clown costume. What's that about? I mean, a couple of different things. I, in answering any questions that are, why did you do this or why did you do that? <laughs> I, I just want to say that um, I'm an art. You know, I tend to think that artists either think about the work they want to make and then make it, or they make the work they want to make and then they think about it. And I'm 50,000 billion percent the latter kind of artist. So okay. I think the reason that I've made that suit is a couple of things. One, that because the performance shifts at times between a sort of enacted version of real life daily routine actions in which I'm in normal clothes and then transitions into more, in quotation marks, performancey, I wanted to do something that would demarcate that transition for the viewer. Another reason is that a typical Eddie Peak performance that I think some people might come to expect is that there would be nudity. You know, I've had my particular reasons why I've wanted to work with nudity. Over the years, I've found that those reasons become very muddy in terms of people's reactions. Or it's really easy for people to construe nudity as shocking or sensationalist or provocative. None of those words are words that I think describe my intentions. So that's kind work. of misunderstanding. Yeah, exactly. So I wanted to try to bring a costume element back into the work just to experiment with that. It's quite a boring performance in many ways. <laughs> There's aspects of it that remind me of a lot of my really, really early performances that were just to do with creating images with living people. I mean, like yesterday, I actually slept on my chaise long inside Testine, the spiral curtain work, for an hour. And I actually fell asleep. Like, I woke, I sort of woke up with a jolt, with that sort of disoriented, <laughs> what, where am I, type experience. And um, I quite like the image of a person in a clown suit sleeping on a chaise long in a gallery. So in a way, it's good that you fell asleep. Yeah, I wanted to. It was intended. It wasn't like an accident. <laughs> <laughs> so... So the work of yours that I've seen before seems to be about exploring desire and sexuality and bodies and everything that that entails. That doesn't seem to be so much present in this show 
Are you sort of moving away from that, which is something that you're known for? No, I'm not. I suppose I wanted to imbue those questions with a different nuance and present them differently in this context, just in view of how nudity is perceived by an audience and also in view of certain topical events of the last several years. I've always thought about desire, sex, sexuality, the body, the significance placed on the body in political terms, I suppose. I feel like you can't present the body without it having a meaning imposed on it, and that, for me, is has a political significance. So when we see a female naked body, for example, mm. we immediately think of sex or sexuality in, uh, in the sense that we assume a male viewer, because that's been the case for so mm. long. I would say that my work is presented in an art context that, I think, invites a different type of scrutiny to like a pornographic context, say, or... Or like an advertising context. Yeah, exactly. It invites a kind of critical viewing. But I'm still astounded by like the baseness and stupidity of a lot of viewers, <laughs> how willing they are to allow themselves to just assume something is there for titillating purposes and so on. I do understand what you're saying. I think that's the patriarchal system that we live in leads us to assume that that's the dynamic a, a sort of powerful, voyeuristic male gaze looking at a vulnerable female form. However, in my work, which has featured a great deal of male nudity, including my own, I've noticed that that, that dynamic also takes place, actually. That there's um, still, like, a voyeurism about yeah, it. Yeah, and from a sort of patriarchal mm. standpoint. I have always thought to scrutinise that in my work and look at the shifting power dynamics that happen within relationships um, via the body. But I've just found that it's quite difficult to do that, actually. And so I, with this show, I wanted to change the way that I've addressed that. My performances that have featured nudity up until the last year or so there's been a much more self-conscious and self-aware relationship between the naked bodies and the performers and the viewer. They'll engage in eye contact with the audience. They'll, they'll sort of do actions that are very aggressive towards the viewer. In more recent performances I've done, including the, the piece that's in the film work in the show, the dancers are much more sort of contained within themselves. I'm always having a struggle with my own desperation. Like, I'm always adding... I feel like I've got to really force myself not to add this bell and this whistle on and going... My worst criticism of my own work is that I think at times it's a bit desperate for attention. It isn't just because I want attention, it's because, for me, the audience completes the work. If there isn't an audience, at a certain level, I feel like the work isn't doing its job. Isn't that true of, like, all performance? No. There are many artists who... One of my favourite artists told me... If this story really stays with me, but this particular artist was doing a spoken word performance in Essex somewhere a few years ago, 
and I saw them after they did it and I asked them how it went and they said oh it was so brilliant I just loved it so much and I was like oh great so like there were loads of people there and they said oh there was there was one viewer I was dumbstruck because I was to me if there was one viewer of a performance that I've done I'd be really disappointed I feel I have to ask you partly because we're in White Cube, one of the, I guess, grandest, most expensive contemporary art galleries. Is selling performance art quite difficult? I mean, I think most people wouldn't, couldn't imagine even how you buy a piece of performance. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think that there are no hard and fast rules about it. The discipline within a commercial contact, context is not very old within a contemporary art market. Having said that, the, the conversation is a rich one that's been being had in the last few years. I, I mean, as someone who is entrenched in that conversation, I've noticed the heat come off it a bit. And actually, about five years ago, it was really people were really talking about that a lot with, um, you know, Tino Segal and yeah. Well, he famously has a kind of verbal contract. Yeah, so, exactly. curator of say Tate will sit down with his dealer and they'll say like. Yeah. I mean, I can't, I'm just making this up, but they'll sort of, like, exchange it just with purely in words. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, something like that, yeah. But I, don't, with... I don't know exactly, but, I, I mean, it's a bit of a gimmick, <laughs> I, I'm going <laughs> to well, say. Well, that sounds like a performance in itself, doesn't yeah. it? What I'd be quite interested to see of, is one of those works presented by someone who's acquired them without Tino Segal's actual involvement. So can the work go on and have an afterlife, like, once it's been sold and the artist doesn't have so much yeah, control over exactly. it. exactly. And there are people who've sold performances in the form of its documentation. So as a video, Yeah, essentially. a series of photographs. The commercial art market and its impact on art is quite complicated. It's a bit messy and muddy and ugly at times. Like I, I always feel after visiting an art fair that I need to like wash myself a bit um, <laughs> I know what you mean yeah and I do I like that um I love the idea of someone buying one of my performances but it means that a buyer would really need to commit to the work at every level not just commercially but also ideologically because what are they going to do put that performance into an auction you know, you can't just go. Yeah. You can't just slip it into Sotheby's because they're pre-art sale. Like <laughs> buy this work of Eddie Peak rolling around on the floor, rubbing paint all over his face, or whatever it is. Did you grow up wanting to be an artist? No, no way, not at all. Why not? Um, I was brought up going to art galleries and museums. I did not enjoy it at all. My association of art was adults sitting around tables, agonizedly talking with serious faces and long pregnant contemplative pauses between <laughs> the points that they're making. I was brought up in a situation with artists for whom making money from their art was not a possibility. I don't want to paint this picture of um, you know, squalor and impoverishedness because I'm not from that but I, even so being an artist is just a difficult experience in terms of like your sustenance and getting by in life. Basically when I was 18 completely unexpectedly 
I made some paintings that I really liked and I actually enjoyed making. And it was a, at a pivotal moment in my life where I wasn't enjoying very much at all. I was going to see a counsellor and taking antidepressant drugs and I wasn't enjoying anything in life. And then totally unexpectedly I made these paintings that I really enjoyed making them. Pretty much in that instant I realised, oh, this is just what I want to do. My decision to be an artist came from the act of making art. It wasn't like a principled decision. Oh, I like the idea of doing that. No, not at all. It was just from making the work. Eddie, thanks so much for speaking to me. No, thank you. <laughs> thank you very much, indeed. That's it for this week. Eddie Peake's show Concrete Pitch is at White Cube Bermondsey in London until the 8th of April and Civilizations, written and presented by Simon Sharma, Mary Beard and David Olasoga, is on BBC Two and iPlayer from the 1st of March. Next week's episode is an Oscars special. I'll be discussing the contenders with the FT's resident film buffs, Raphael Abraham and India Ross, and I'll also be speaking to Echo Eschen, who you'll remember from our Basquiat episode last year, and we'll be discussing Black Panther and why it matters now. You can subscribe on any podcast app or listen online at ft.com slash everything else. And please do leave us a rating or review. You can find everything we've talked about today at facebook.com slash everything else podcast. Please let us know what you think of the show there or email us at everything else at ft.com. This podcast is produced by Chica Ayres, I've been Griselda Murray-Brown, and our music is composed and produced by Fatum. Fatum.